evening for our study together to the second psalm, psalm number two. The second psalm, <clears throat> you will notice that there are four stanzas in this psalm of three verses each. It is a little longer than the psalm we studied last Sunday evening, Psalm 2, that we've entitled this evening, The Lord and His Anointed, but we could equally have chosen the title, What is Wrong, What's Wrong, as a title for Psalm 2. And we'll read through it together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you, king, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thanks be to God. Now we're turning together this evening to the second psalm as the subject of our study, as on these Sunday evenings, God willing, we will be looking together at the first ten psalms in the Psalter. And what a wonderful and rich and varied fair this is. As I was reminding you last Sunday evening, it is almost symbolic that at the very center of the Bible is the book of Psalms. You pick up your Bible and you open it in the middle, and there you are in the book of Psalms. As though symbolically God was saying to his church and his people today, here is a portion of my book that you should always be reading and thinking about and meditating upon. Because it seems the book of Psalms speaks to every condition that you and I know as Christian men and women and young people here this evening. And I think I reminded you last Sunday evening that if there is one theme text for this whole magnificent portion of God's word, it is Psalm 66, verse 16, where the psalmist invites the people of God and he says, Come near, O ye people of God, and I will tell you what the Lord has done for me. 
It is a marvelous testimony to God's dealings with his people in every conceivable condition of heart and life. Now you remember that last Sunday evening we were looking together at Psalm 1 as the very sentinel to the whole of the 150 Psalms. It's as though the Lord has taken that wonderful first Psalm and set it as the guard by the door that leads into all the riches of the Psalter. Because there you remember that as that Psalm was the sentinel, it dealt with the two ways that men may walk through this world. And there are only two. The one is the way of the righteous, and the other is the way of the wicked. And in that psalm, righteousness was powerfully contrasted, you remember, with wickedness. Two kinds of men walking in two very different paths towards two ultimate kinds of destiny. To be with the Lord in glory on the one hand, and to be with the wicked in endless destruction, on the other hand. Now this evening, as we come then to the second psalm, you notice that there is very little similarity between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 was beautifully reflective, wasn't it? It made us stand and think and meditate upon these mighty sentinel-like truths and ask ourselves the question, in which way Am I walking? Which kind of life am I living today? Which kind of destiny am I ultimately heading for? But whereas Psalm 1 was reflective, Psalm 2 is filled with vibrant action. It is an active psalm, isn't it? Because as we read these verses a little earlier, you will have thought of the picture of a king enthroned surrounded by his rebellious subjects. And here is a rebellion against the great king of all, the Lord and his anointed, who is the Lord Jesus, as we will see. And how that mighty king looking down from heaven laughs at their puny efforts to throw off the cords and bands of his rule over them. And he exhorts them at the close of that wonderful psalm to obedience to him and to his rule. It is a psalm filled with vibrant activity. Now, as we read it a few moments ago, you may well have asked, does it describe a particular incident? For example, from the life of David, who undoubtedly wrote this psalm according to the New Testament evidence and its quotations from it. Was it an incident from the life of David? Well, we are not really sure. Some commentators think that this was, the dis this was the situation as David came to rule first over Judah and later over all of Israel. You remember he was crowned in the city of Hebron and became king of Judah. And then finally the ten tribes of Israel accepted him and he was crowned over all of Israel. Now, the only problem with that thesis is that there is no indication at that time that all the nations surrounding Israel, were about to rebel against Israel. In fact, Israel had no dominion over them. So historically, we really don't know the circumstances that gave this psalm its birth. But what we do know is this, that from its use in the New Testament, it does not refer to one isolated event. 
Here is a prophecy of all history. Here is an insight into the course of all human history. What was happening centuries ago? What was happening in this century? What is happening now? What will be happening in years to come? You see, it's as though the psalmist is drawing aside the very veil of history and he is showing to us what will happen when men forsake God. Now that is its message. You see, just as the first psalm has said there are two ways that men may go, this psalm draws back the curtain and says, I will show you what happens when men follow the second way. When they listen to the counsel of the ungodly, when they stand in the way of sinners, when they sit in the seat of scoffers, this is the kind of world that will inevitably follow when wickedness is upon the throne of the nations. So you see, in a sense, it is a wonderful key to what is happening today in 1986. My dear friends, this psalm is not history. This psalm is contemporary. It is a vast, deep pool of wisdom and direction for the child of God today. I stand here this evening and I say, Lord, what is wrong with the world today? Why is it as it is? And the answer is in the verses of Psalm 2. Now, I suggested to you a few moments ago that there are four separate stanzas of three verses each. And I want to telescope the psalm somewhat. We're going to deal only with the first three verses this evening and, God willing, return to the second two sections next Sunday. But the three divisions of this psalm, as I see it, are first of all the world about us in verses 1 to 3. And then secondly, the God above us in verses 4 to 9. And finally, the path before us in verses 10 to 12, as the Lord speaks from glory and counsels the nations and the men of the world to desist from their disobedience and to be reconciled to him as the only way of fruitfulness and blessing and life and the only way of escaping his most solemn judgment, the world about us, the God above us, the path before us. My dear friends, tonight we have a window opened into history and what is happening in our world today. Now then, let us content ourselves, as I said, by looking simply at the first three verses of the psalm, the world about us. Do you remember what the psalmist says? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The world about us. Now you see what the psalmist is doing is that he is giving a remarkable, and to use this North American word that fascinates me, an insightful description of our world today. 
as well as his. My dear friends, are these truths not so utterly contemporary and applicable to the world in which we live this evening? You see, as the psalmist looked around in his day, great King David, what did he see among the nations? Well, he saw the very same thing that you and I are seeing in substance today, political turmoil and international strife. Here was this great king, the anointed of the Lord, upon the throne that had been established in Israel, saw its first occupant a disaster. David, a man after God's own heart. And no sooner has he ascended on the throne of Israel than what happens? Satan organizes an international conspiracy to put him off the throne altogether, to overthrow him, to do away with his reign, to crush Israel, the people of God, to snuff out the light of God's appointing. And they were saying, in effect, we will not have this man to rule over Israel, still less ourselves. And David was conscious of the political turmoil and the international strife of his own day. Now you see, as you and I look around the world today, what do we see? Do we not see the same picture of the nations in tumult, raging and plotting away? Oh, we live in the 20th century, and this century began, though I'm not old enough to remember it, but the history books tell you, it began with great optimism. Here was man come of age. Here is all this marvelous scientific progress of the 20th century. These great technological advances, these tremendous battleships that were unsinkable, these great armaments and guns. This would be an age, men said at the beginning of this century, when, if we have to fight a war, it will be the war that ends wars. Man at last has come into his own. The age of man was proudly announced in the 20th century. And then there came war, the First World War, followed swiftly by the Second World War. And all this great illusion of man being at the helm of, the his of history began to disintegrate. And men began to have second thoughts. And you had the League of Nations formed, didn't you? To secure peace in our time, followed very quickly by the United Nations and its charter. And what was happening in all this process of this great century? Man's world. Man at the helm of history, taking that helm out of the hands of God and saying, we can do it, thank you, unaided by ourselves. And you read in the pages of the history books, no reference to God, or his ways, or his word, or his claims upon the nations, and upon us as individuals. And the result has been there for everyone to see, hasn't it? political turmoil and international strife. Have all these conferences that have been held produced peace in our time and harmony among the nations and led us back to God, the great ruler of all? And the answer is no. 
And you see all these great statesmen, with all their gifts of elocution and ability, hastening from one conference to another and one country to another. All is haste and urgency. And what does it achieve? And the answer is no account has been made at all of what God requires of us and what he wants us to do. And you see, the psalmist is absolutely right. When we ask ourselves, what is the fruit of all this restless activity in the nations? It is two things, isn't it? And you see it there first in verse 1 and then in verses 2 and 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot, he says, in vain? They are plotting. Now, it's a very suggestive word in Hebrew. It means literally to mutter to oneself. Why do the nations murmur among themselves? And the picture is a very vital one in Hebrew. It's vibrant. Here is a, an international conspiracy against God. This is what they're doing. They're gathering together and they're saying, we don't want the great ruler above, to order our affairs. And we're murmuring and we're muttering together and we're seeing how we can overthrow his rule and his reign. Now you see, this is the very same word and here is the interesting thing. It is the very same word that is used in Psalm 1 verse 2 of the godly man. What is the activity of the godly man in verse 2 of Psalm 1? He meditates on the law of God day and night. He meditates. And this very same word in Hebrew is translated in verse 1, plots. And you can see what the psalmist is conveying to us. That the only alternative to meditating in the law of God and being a godly man who wants to serve the Lord and go in his ways, the only alternative to it is that you are plotting and murmuring and muttering in order to throw off the rule and the bands of the Lord and be liberated from him. In other words, the characteristic activity of the man who is not a Christian and a servant of the Lord in the world in every age is that he wants to overthrow the Lord's rule upon him. Man left to himself, consciously or unconsciously, is an enemy of God's. Now do you see the picture from this psalm then this evening? And you see it through all of history, don't you? You take ancient civilizations and histories mentioned in the Bible. The Lord raised up Assyria. He gave this great nation by the Euphrates great military power and strength. And it spread its territory through all the ancient world. It threatened Israel itself and it invaded God's people. And it said to itself, I have all power. I'm sitting in the seat of all power. And all the nations must bow before me until the day came when God in his sovereignty humbled that nation to the very dust. And then there arose Babylonia plotting against the Lord. 
and its civilization spread, and its territory increased. Followed in quick succession, you remember, by the empire of Medo-Persia, and then by Greek, Greece, and then by Rome, until it began to oppose the Christian church, and the Lord took it, and he, he put it down in the very dust as well. The whole of history bears this consistent message that man left to himself, consciously or unconsciously, is an enemy of God. Well, you might say, of course, this is history. This is in the history books. But we live in an enlightened age. And the influence of Christianity has affected national policies and international relationships and the way the nations think. But has it? What is the characteristic today of our national policies and priorities, with very few exceptions, even in this Christian country of the United States? What is the characteristic? Isn't the characteristic this, that what we hear continually is what men think? Isn't that right? How often do you hear the name of God introduced into legislation? and into the laws that are being framed, and into the policies that the politicians manufacture. Isn't that the great missing note so often in our nation today? And we only need to think of the international scene and its affairs, and that becomes even more apparent, where great sections of the globe, one-third of the Earth's surface is under communistic rule, where officially the name of God is banned, where the nations have plotted so effectively to exclude him from their life that even his name and his worship cannot be mentioned legally anymore. And you listen to the media and you pick up your newspaper, and isn't it conspicuous that you have every opinion mentioned there except what the Lord thinks? of the situation so often. Refusal of God. A world without God. Why do the nations plot, says the psalmist? Well, the second result you see of this is mentioned in verses 2 and 3, isn't it? They resolve, but it is against the Lord and against his anointed one that we will scheme and plan and plot. In other words, there is no secret about it. They're not muttering about this politician or that politician or this particular policy that they want changed. They're muttering against the highest. Their opposition is against the sovereign Lord of the universe. And all their venom and their rejection is aimed at him. They are making preparations, as one commentator says, for armed insurrection against heaven itself. They would seize the helm of history from the hand of the sovereign God that controls it. Let us break their chains and throw their fetters far from us. Now it's rather a pity, isn't it? that the New International Version renders these words chains and fetters. As someone said to me recently, it's the nearly indispensable version. Well, it isn't quite very good as it really is as a translation. 
because the literal word is better rendered in the King James Version. We will cast their bands from us and throw off their cords. It's not chains and fetters, but bands and cords. And you see what the psalmist is doing is painting a very vivid picture indeed for us. Any Israelite reading this psalm would immediately have understood what that picture was. Here were the ox carts going down the ancient Israelite streets in their cities and in their country villages. And on the oxen's neck would be a heavy yoke. And that yoke would be attached to the animal by bands. And the animal would be directed by the cords that the rider held in his hands. In other words, these were means of directing the great energy of these animals used for transportation in the ancient East, directing the animal where it should go, keeping it out of the ditch to one side of the road, keeping it in the safe, straight path. It was there for the animal's benefit, in other words, to steer it in the right way. And here are the nations saying, enough of it! Away with all divine restraints. Cast them off from us. And in their folly, you see, the only way that men can go who do not know the Lord is this kind of way that leads inevitably to destruction. My dear friends, do you not see this happening on the pages of history in front of you today? Whether it's territorial expansion, one nation says, I want what doesn't belong to me, and forgets that it is the Lord who marks out the boundaries of the nations. Or whether it's in the realm of ideology, as in the communist regimes, we will dictate how people think and what they believe. And all this talk of religion is an anachronism. It's a superstition. Away with it! And the great cry among the nations is summarized, isn't it, in one word today. Liberation. We must all be free. Liberation. Do your own thing. Build a world of your own. And it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Until you find that when you do your own thing, and it isn't quite the same as the thing your neighbor wants to do, there's a conflict, isn't there? And the weakest to the wall. And power comes from the person that looks down the barrel of a gun. And you find very quickly that this idealistic utopia of fallen man has become the ultimate refuge of folly. And we live with the law of the jungle around us. My dear friends, is it not a tragedy this evening? Oh, weep, weep with me. But a world gone astray is like the dumb animal that has thrown off the cords and bands of divine restraint and is being led down the road to disaster and slaughter. Nations and men rushing on in their folly toward an inevitable and sudden judgment of God. Now you see, as I draw these things to a conclusion this evening, isn't it the psalmist who is the only sane person? 
in this amazing description of contemporary life? Isn't it only the psalmist who realizes what is happening? As he looks at these things in verses 1 to 3, what is his reaction? And I trust it's yours and mine by the grace of God this evening. Well, he notices several things, doesn't he? And there are three of them that I want to bring to your attention as we close. The first is this, that every voice is being listened to except the Lord's. I mentioned it earlier, and I want to mention it and emphasize it again. Every voice is being listened to except the most important voice of all. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot? He says, why do they take counsel together? And who are they taking counsel with? Everyone, except the most important counselor of all. And so they come to that inevitable and disastrous conclusion. Let us break their chains and cast their fetters from us, the Lord's fetters and his anointed fetters. In other words, they have no interest at all in what he will say to them. And he's going to say it in verse 6. Look at it. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. But they don't want to hear that. That's the last thing that they want to hear. And still less what the Lord is saying in verses 7 to 9. Ask of me and I will give you, the Lord Christ, the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost places of the earth for your possession. They don't want to hear that. Now isn't it true of our world today that we're living as a world blind to the only solution to our problems? Because God has given us that solution. He's given us the answer. He said, here I am. I will be your counselor. Listen to me. You have my word, the Bible, the way of heaven and the way of life. Listen to it, read it, mark it, inwardly digest it. And I have given you, my son, the only way of salvation. Oh, no, says the world. We have our philosophers. We have our scientists. We have our false prophets. They are sufficient for us. And oh, the disaster of these things. Look around you today. What are the philosophers of our age doing? They are no more than the acme of human wisdom. That's all they are. Human wisdom perhaps at its highest. What are the scientists? They are discovering the secrets of the universe. And what are those secrets? Only what God has created in the first place. Here are the false prophets. What are they telling the world? They're telling the world a false message that man is God and ought to be on the throne. And they've taken God and they've humanized him and made him a comfortable old man that no one need fear anymore. And so, like a ship helpless in the storm, because they will not listen to the Lord's voice, 
Here is a world gone astray into disaster and impending destruction. Now here is the second thing that the psalmist notices. But they have rejected God's rule and standards. Now we saw that, didn't we? They've cast off the bands and the cords. Why has the Lord put them there? For man's benefit, hasn't he? They do not realize, you see, these nations, these ungodly men, that when the Lord says, Thou shalt on the one hand, and thou shalt not on the other hand, in his holy law, and constrains us and restricts us, it is for our goods. And the extraordinary picture is that ungodly men behave like wild oxen. They reject God's gift of his word. They say, away with this man. We will not have him, the Christ, to rule over us. And as for prayer, they say, it is a meaningless nonsense. This great means that God has given to us of communication with himself, the Lord of the universe. Rejection of God's rule and standards and provision. And the third and final thing he sees is, is in many ways the most surprising of all. What is his response to this scene in verse 1? Do you notice how the psalm begins? Why? Why are they doing it? In other words, it's a response of utter astonishment. And it sets the tone for all that is to follow him. Why? On earth are they doing something so utterly stupid and futile? It is so senseless to try to reject the God of the universe. How can they possibly hope, he says, to vanquish the power of his hand and to set aside his own anointed king? Look at them, these atheists, these communists, these materialists, these humanists, these false ecumenists of the age who think that they are God. Have they forgotten that it is God who governs the course of history, who determines the boundaries of kingdoms? Have they forgotten that they are on earth and he is in the glory of heaven? And he sits and he observes it all with calmness. And he laughs. My dear friend, what an insight this godly man has. And as we finish this evening... I want to say to you that wherever the world persecutes the Christian church, this psalm comes alive again, doesn't it? You might say this evening, Lord, why do the nations rage today? Why have men so largely forgotten all about you? And the answer is, in listening to the Lord saying to your troubled heart, I have the answer already in place. I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion.
and promise to him the day is coming when the nations of this world shall be his and he shall be king of kings and lord of lords. My dear friend, this evening this is where the church comes into its own, isn't it? Are you living day by day on that glorious hope of the kingship of Christ? Are you conscious that to you has been entrusted this great word of redemption to bear before the nations? That the Lord's king is already in his place? And his word is there to direct the sinner? And the Savior waits with open arms, saying to the sinner, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you quickly perish in the way. Oh, my dear friends this evening, what a privilege is yours and mine to see as the psalmist does heaven's perspective upon this troubled scene. What's wrong? The Lord and his anointed have the answer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this meditation this evening and pray that thou wilt continue to enrich our understanding through these great and so contemporary truths that apply so powerfully to the church of God today. For Jesus' sake, amen.